Well, we are coming back to our study series on 1 Samuel, uh, searching for a king. And we've been trying to, to get a balance of, you know, some New Testament studies and Old Testament studies. Um, I think it is because so far long ago, the Old Testament might be difficult for us to understand and even to apply to our own lives. It's kind of uh, uh, more difficult. But... Um, it is being enjoyable, at least for me, to study through these things. And um, as I send in, in the email to the church recently, this is a passage that's very exciting. <laughs> you know, uh, Jonathan uh, climbing through these crag hills, and uh, it, it, it is an exciting text, but there's a lot to teach us about the Lord. And I titled the sermon today, The Lord is Not Restrained. The Lord is Not Restrained. And we'll be going through two chapters today. It's a little bit of a longer text, but I'm not going to read all at once. So the way of introduction, I, I thought about Harry Houdini. I think most of you have heard of this man as he was born. Eric Waynes um, in March 24 of 19, uh, 1874. He was a Hungarian-American um, escape artist. He was a, a magician, a magic man, or a stunt performer that he was truly known for his escape acts. His pseudonym is a reference to his spiritual master, French magician Robert Houdin. So he first attracted notice in vaudeville in the United States. Then his nickname was Harry Handcuff Houdini. On, um, on a tour in Europe where he challenged police forces to keep him locked up. Soon he extended his repertoire to include chains and ropes slung from skyscrapers, straitjackets underwater, and having to escape from and hold his breath inside a sealed milk can with water in it. In 1904, Thousands watched him trying to escape from special handcuffs commissioned by London Daily Mirror, keeping them in suspense for a whole hour. Another son saw him buried alive and only just able to claw himself to surface, emerging in a state of almost a breakdown, near breakdown. You know, it amazes me every time when I see these um, people pulling out these stunts of getting out of restraints. And, and I beg the question, are they really real? Are they just trying to, to deceive us? You know, is this a mirage? Is this they're playing, with our, playing tricks on us? Why do you think is this so captivating for us to watch? So people getting out of restraints. I believe it's because we put ourselves in their shoes. We feel the anguish of the restraints. We get anxious with the prospect of not being able to get out of that panic-inducing uh, scenario. In our narrative today, we'll be confronted with a panic-inducing scenario as well in the life of the, the Israelites. The people of Israel are in a helpless ensnare. As, as some say today, they are between a rock and a higher place. And yet, there is one who has no restraints, one who is unrestrained. 
So let, let's get to our text here in 1 Samuel chapter 13, and we'll pick up from verse 15. That's where we left off last time. And for now, we're going to read into verse 6, but I'm going to preach all the way through 23 from 14. So verse 15, thus says the word of God. Then Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Now Saul and his son Jonathan the, and the people who were present with them were staying at Ge- in Geba of Benjamin, while the Philistines camped at Michmash. And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies, one company toward Ophrah and the other uh, to the land of Shual, and another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company toward the border which overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords and spears. So Israel went down to the Philistines each to sharpen his plowshare and his mattock and his axe and his hoe. The charge was two-thirds of a shackle for the plowshares, for the mattocks, for the forks, for the axes, and to fix the holes. So it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass, the pass of Michmash. Now the dame came about that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to his young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the Philistines, the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But did he not tell his father? Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron, and the people who were with him were about 600 men. And Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord of Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone between the passes which Jonathan sought cross over to the Philistines' garrisons. There was a sharp crag on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Senna. The one crag rose on the north opposite Michmash, and the other south opposite of Geba. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the garrison of this uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we are uh, thankful for all your goodness and kindness toward us. Lord, we are thankful for your word that though have been written for many, many thousands uh, of, of years ago, we can trust in it, we can be encouraged by it, and I pray, Lord, that we would do just that to your people today. I know that all these geographical references and topographical references might distract us, but I pray, Lord, that may we find encouragement and confidence uh, 
there's absolutely nothing that restrains you. Lord, I pray for those that might be struggling today to find comfort in their difficult circumstances, with their pressures, with their apparently helpless state. May they look to you for comfort, Lord. And I pray that this passage will open the eyes of your people to see you for who you are in all your power and all your glory and your willingness to help and give hope to your people. This is our desire, and that's, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so our um, outline is there on your little printout. We have some questions there in the back for you, um, and it's a very simple outline. Two points here. Yahweh is not restrained. Yahweh is the name of the Lord in Hebrew, his covenant name. Um, and Yahweh is not restrained in his people's helplessness. Uh, that's on chapter 13. And then the second, first part of verse 14, chapter 14, Yahweh is not restrained to deliver his people. Right, so let's start with Yahweh is not restrained in his people's helplessness. So in verse 15, we read here that by this time, Saul had taken up his position again in a hill country near Geba. So we're going to look at some maps now, and hopefully it will help you to kind of see where, let me see if I can find the pointer. All right, so Saul is right here in Geba. It's also known as Gibeah of Benjamin, so sometimes you will read that name, sometimes you read Geba. And then Jonathan is up there, um, there with him. Jonathan and his men were stationed, and their forces numbered only 600. At this point, they started with a big army in the beginning of chapter 13, um, and now they're reduced to only 600. Then we have a deep ravine that acted as a barrier between the Philistines that is up here north in Michmash and Geba. That's where the, Phil the Israelites are. But from the nearby advantage, vantage points, it would be easy to keep track of every movement of the enemy. So there are two um, big ridge routes, and then there's this huge canyon separating them, so they could see each other from that. Philistine bands went raiding in three directions. Now, I want to, you to realize how their situation, is, how bad it is. That's why the author is taking the painstaking time to describe the, the geography and how this was really bad. So from all sides, the Philistines are sending this, um, this, this um, raiding party. So the first one says that one came, raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company toward Ophrah, which is um, westward, uh, it's northward. So they're coming up here to the north. You see the dotted uh, green line. And then there's another one coming toward Beth Horon um, going west, and then another one going east here to Zeboin, which is near the Dead Sea. You see the Dead Sea here? So they're going all over persecuting the Israelites. So west, north, and um, south. And then they dominated what they called the pass. And I remember this is a, a huge road if you're riding uh, toward the north of Israel. And basically they blocked every way that they could be protected. That's basically what this text is saying. 
Clearly, Saul and his troops were, troops were very much at risk with uh, the largest rec recorded Philistine army camped to less than two miles away and all hope of assistance from the northern tribes because they had a block up there. The situation was made even worse by the great disparity between the, Philist the Israelite and the Philistine armaments. They didn't have any fighting weapons. That's what we just read there. Um, the Philistines possessed large numbers of metal weapons, but by strictly controlling Israel's access to metallurgical technology and technicians, the Philistines effecti effectively limited the entire Israelite arsenal to weapons made of wooden stones. Basically, that was the only protection. It was pieces of wood that, yes, could hurt um, arrows or slings or javelins and clubs and knives and the like couldn't hurt people, but was definitely inferior than metal uh, weapons made of bronze and iron. The Philistine embargo was so effective when they had this armed conflict between Israel's royal Philistines that only Saul and his son had swords. It's only two swords to fight the whole army. That, I mean, talk about helplessness. <laughs> The Philistines' control of Israel's access to metal also meant that Israel had no blacksmith. I was just read here in verse 19 that there was no blacksmith found in the city. So even for um, their agricultural tools to be serviced, they had to go all the way to the Philistine cities in the, the coast, like we have Aphek here and then Gaza and other cities like Gath and Gezer. These are the Philistine cities. They had to go all the way here from the hill country down to the, um, to the plains to get their, their tools for agriculture working, uh, being sharped. So the Philistines used their monopoly of technology for economic gain as well as charging much for it. They were getting a lot of money for just um, sharpening a tool. So as they costed a pin, which is two-thirds of a shackle of silver, which is about eight grams, um, grams and ounces. I, I, I'm still working with my metrical system brain. <laughs> so for simple repairs, they had to pay a big buck. No doubt this fee was considered outrageous and they had an effect of oppressing Israel economically as well. Now, I, I love archaeology. I think I have shared this with you. And anytime that I see something that is, um, let me see here, that is helpful, I, I think it's cool. So they found this in Tel Aviv. I remember when I showed in the map how the um, cities of the Philistines are all on the coast. So Tel Aviv is a coastal city, is the capital actually of the modern state of Israel. And they found this metal workshop in Tel Aviv that is dating from the 12th to the 10th century BC. That's exactly the time frame when the Philistines would be living there. So archaeological excavations in Tel uh, Kassil in Tel Aviv have uncovered a Philistine settlement dated on the Iron Age, given Iron Age is when they started making tools of iron instead of bronze and other things. Israel was way behind on that technology. That's where um, the Philistines were ahead of them. Two clay smelting um, cubicles, as you can see there, like these little um, forge for sharpening tools, uh, found near the circular forward shown in this photo, evidence a bronze casting workshop. This supports the observation that we just read here in 1 Samuel 
uh, 13 that the Philistines had established a metal, metal working facilities during the time of Saul. I think this is pretty cool. Um, moving on verse 23 here. Then we read that the garrison of the Philistines went out from the pass of Michmash. Now, I will go back here for some of these um, things. Remember that I showed you the, the pass was that um, basically the, the long road that linked the north of Israel to the south of Israel. So they were controlling all of this pass. Nobody could go in and nobody could go out. These are the two cliffs that he, he talks about, Bozes and Sene, and then uh, Michmash. Actually, there is a city there, a modern city uh, called Mukmas, um, and you, you can see the little towns in there, and this is where the, the division is between the city. Also, I want to remind you of the predicament of the war. You know, from our last message, it's a little bit of review here. Look at the pressure that they were in here. Let's just uh, look back to verses 5 and 7. It says that there was a huge army. encamped against them in the in Michmash, in the, the area, in that plateau. And then when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and pits. And also some of the Hebrews crossed to the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. It was a, a hard scenario here. It says that um, there is a multitude, there is men on horseback, there is foot troops that were like the sand in the seashore in multitude. And you will remember what I compared the attack that Jonathan did um, um, in, the, in the area there. He had a first battle and basically, it was like a messing up with a beehive. Remember, I told the story of me as a kid messing up with the Brazilian bees? And basically, that what, that's what he did. And they, it came out of nowhere in great numbers. Um, but as my cousin and I messing with the Brazilian beehive, how their numbers so rapidly multiplied. We were sure, we sure had the hard, the had the stings to tell you that they felt as numerous as descended on the seashore in multitude. But my childhood panic couldn't even compare to what the Israelites' reaction to the Philistines were here. They hid themselves in every hole that they could find. Some of them actually deserted and allied themselves to their enemy. It says here that they left and they, they joined together to the Philistines because they were so scared, so afraid. So really chapter 13 highlights the theme of Israel help, Israel's helplessness. Clearly from a human standpoint, Israel's situation was hopeless. The Israelite band was dispirited. It was cut off from their northern comrades. They couldn't find any help. Um, this is modern city there, Mi'kmaq. They couldn't find help. They, they were really distressed in all of these uh, hard-pressed situation. It was clearly that it was clear that they were vastly outnumbered. 
by the enemy who possessed thousands of chariots and horses and soldiers with superior armaments. But I want to remind you, and this is the, our first um, lesson here, is I want to remind you that helplessness shouldn't lead to hopelessness. They have seen it too often. I like how the commentator Ralph Davis puts it, the total helplessness of God's people proves to be the backdrop for Yahweh's deliverance. I'm going to read it again. It says the total helplessness of God's people proves to be the backdrop for Yahweh's deliverance. It is when they're most helpless that God has shown himself to be powerful enough to deliver them. That is frequently Yahweh's way with Israel. That is why the remnant refuses to lose heart. Not that his people enjoy being in this helpless condition. It is simply that they have seen Yahweh create deliverance out of nothing way too many times. I mean, think about their deliverance from Egypt. Think about their deliverance during the time of Judges. In all these times, the Lord has proved himself mighty to save, mighty to deliver them. You see, when we are in a thicket of trials, we only tend to see the pressure. We only tend to see how helpless we are. Maybe the Israelites thought to themselves as the psalmist in Psalm 121, verse 1. What did he say? I wonder, I lift, my eye, my, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? I look everywhere. I am surrounded. I'm feeling hard-pressed. Where does my help come from? And we think that things, you know, God is powerful, but their things are too complicated. They're too hard for him. And we're reminded from Numbers eleven twenty three when the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's power limited? And Moses replied to him, now you shall see whether my word will come true or not for you. Everything he said he would do, he does it. Isaiah 59 also begs the question to his people. Behold, the Lord's hand is not short that he cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that he cannot hear. God is not in a straight jacket, feeling, struggling to be released from restraints. He's unrestrained, even in our helplessness. I want to read a few texts here with you. Isaiah, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah wrote this to comfort his people that they were going to experience God's um, discipline on them and they were going to struggle and they would be helpless and, and hopeless at that point and really discouraged thinking that, well, this is beyond God's help. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but it, you, know, you can read it at home. But starting in verse 27, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and you assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escape me the notice of my God? He doesn't pay attention. He doesn't know what's going on with me. That's what they're saying. And the Lord asked back to them, Do you not know? Have you not heard? 
the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. You cannot get him tired, even in your failings. He gives his strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired of vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. And they will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Why? Because they trust in the Lord. Now, I want to take you to another text where a prophet of God a man of God that is trying to process this discipline that he's enduring, Jeremiah, he, he went through the discipline that God sent on the Israelites during the Babylonian captivity. And, and he's just struggling with his thoughts. You know, you read some Psalms and you see very similar to what is written here in Lamentations chapter 3. I want you to see the description of what is going on here with Jeremiah, it's turning on verse 1, and I'm going to skip some of them. It says, I am the man who has seen affliction. I, I am hard-pressed here. I'm afflicted because of the rod of his wrath. And he's acknowledging this is the Lord's discipline. Some of his perception of God is a little twisted, um, Verse 5, he says, He has besieged me, talking about the Lord, and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places, he has made me dwell. My life is just miserable, like those who have long been dead. He's feeling like he has nowhere to go. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer, and it seems like God doesn't answer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone, and he has made my path crooked. Sees even God like this lion or he's this bear just waiting for the moment for him to slip so he can get him. His whole perception of God has been skewed. It says in verse 17 that my soul has been rejected from peace, and I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my strength has perished, and so has my hope in the Lord. It's kind of hopeless when we read this account of Jeremiah, right? But you get to verse 21 and things change here because he starts reminding himself of who God is truly. This is who he is. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. It's not looking at my circumstances. See what I'm going to look at? The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him to the person who seeks him. It is good to wait that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. 
Why am I reading all these texts here? Because what the picture that we're seeing with the Israelites, it's a helpless one. Just like for Isaiah and just for like Jeremiah. And yet, what he's trying to remind us here is he's not restrained. And as the psalmist asked, I looked up to the mountains and I asked, where does my help come from? He answers it. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He created everything under the earth. There's nothing that is beyond his control. This vivid and attract account of Jonathan, uh, the prince, and his bold uh, sortie against the enemy provides a detailed picture of the king who would then be Saul's successor. Um, Moving on here, um, that this helplessness doesn't need to lead to hopelessness. In fact, we look to the Lord and we find help, and he uses people to deliver them. So moving on to chapter 14, the second point is the Lord is not restrained to save. The Lord is not restrained to save. If in, verse thir- in chapter 13, we've seen the helplessness of the people, we see things changing here. So it gets exciting in chapter 14. The word of the Lord to Samuel when the identity of Israel first king was revealed, he said that the king, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. And, you know, even though we don't see Saul doing a whole lot of that, we see his son Jonathan doing just that, right? He already over defeated them in the battle in the beginning of chapter 13. And now here again, he's coming um, to the game to be a player. So our first sub-point is the Lord acts despite faithlessness and presumption. And I'm primarily refraining, uh, refrain, uh, referring here to Saul. Just reading the beginning of chapter 14, how um, Saul is just staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Megron. All right? He's just sitting there. When there's clear pressure for his people, he already got the order to battle from Samuel. What are you waiting for? The strain of Saul's indecision was more than his son could bear, so hence his decision to survey the enemy garrison at the close quarters. Jonathan took his armor-bearer into his confidence, and in his sheer audacity, he says, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. So I want to move here. Remember that this is where Saul's forces are in Migron. He is under that pomegranate tree, just having a good time while his son is just thinking on how we're going to get past this great valley here and get to the Philistines' outpost in Michmash. And then the, I, I like even how the narrator adds some teasing bit of intelligence here, you know, but he did not tell his father. You know, he did this and he didn't tell his dad. We don't know why. Probably Jonathan thought that Saul would forbid his venture. Boldness was not Saul's forte these days. So perhaps Jonathan feared Saul would keep him from sitting under the the pomegranate tree until the cows would come home. But Jonathan's scheme, Saul's ignorance, this could become quite dramatic. His father, on the other hand, seemingly hiding as a coward at Geba, or Gibeah of Benjamin, as I said, 
under this pomegranate tree in the region of Migron. Migron actually means precipice. I don't know if that is telling. Um, but Jonathan was moving, and Saul was just sitting. Verse 3, we read here that the pride of Samuel's support had um, Saul's had turned to Ahijah. I, I don't know if you will remember some of this, but we got description. Who is this Ahijah guy? I mean, Samuel left him. Samuel, the prophet of the Lord at that time, left him. And he goes to Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother. I want to remind you of that lineage. Let me see here if I got. Oops, oops. The lineage. These are Eli's descendant. I mean, bring all the way back to chapter 3. This guy is son of Ichabod, which meant what? No glory, or the glory departed from Israel. Remember when the ark left? So Ichabod had a son, and his name was Ahijah. Now, mind you, let's go back to chapter 3 and verse 11 through 14 tells us that the Lord already had determined to finish and end up with the lineage of Eli because of his son of his sin of um, eating the, the, the food sacrifice for the sacrifices and committing sexual immorality with the women that came to serve at the temple. They were just treating God's sacrifice with disrespect, bringing morality into the temple. Um, and because of that, the Lord has judged them very harshly, and, and rightly so, because they were, they were thieves, they were thugs in the temple. The very people that were supposed to teach them were the thugs of the time. So here's the prophet saying that in verse 11, the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do this thing in Israel that you know their ears will tingle. In verse 12 it says, in that they will carry out carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I'm about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because of his sons brought curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. All these things were happening. The problem is that Eli did not even you know, rebuke them for what they were doing. He was actually participating on their sin. Therefore, I sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So these people have been rejected by God already. And here we have King Saul that was rejected by God condoning with him. So here are the leaders. Sitting there is Saul, whose dynasty has been rejected because of his disobedience and presumption. Remember last chapter that he presumed upon the Lord and he was doing sacrifices that Samuel was supposed to do. Instead of waiting for the Lord's instructions, he gave in to the pressure and just did what he thought was best, what he thought was good in his own eyes. Assisted by who? Ahijah, whose priestly line has been rejected. What do you doing with that guy i would be far away from him knowing that the lord has cussed that person and he would surely bring disgrace to the nation since samuel has left saul with no authorized prophetic direction he has rejected a priestly line instead 
what help can such a king and such a priest give to the nation? All right, now let's go back to a little bit of topography here, more of the, the geography part, because the author gets excited and he describes it with a lot of details. He says that um, the, the people did not know that Jonathan had gone in verse 4, between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistine garrison, there was this sharp crag in one side and a sharp crag in another side, the name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other was um, Senet. So in Hebrew, you know, there's some discussion what these, these names means. But one, this Bozes cliff basically means shining or slippery, just to mean that it was very hard to climb. And Senet was a thorny, perhaps full of um, blackberry bushes. They had a lot of blackberry bushes there. This is what... Um, the last road anyone in their right mind would choose to take. I mean, would you choose to go through these hills here? Um, this is another aerial view here. And um, Wadi Swaniti is what separates the Shubozes and Sene. Um, and Wadi basically means a, uh, a dry creek bed that floods during the rain. So whenever winter comes and the rain comes and all of this gets washed out and they have a little creek running there, but Wadi uh, Swaniti, uh, it's a valley of little thorn trees or acacia. So you can see how those little thorns are um, for them to climb it. This was the, the last route that anyone in their right mind would choose to go. As we read, though, Jonathan's bravery provides some hopeful excitement here. Things start brightening up for the people of Israel, not because of the faithless King Saul, there's nothing to do with it. The man is just sitting under a tree, eating pomegranates, while his son is going to battle. But because of their faithful God. Moving on. And just a reminder, you know, 2 Timothy 2.13 is a great reminder for us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because that's his nature. He cannot deny himself. So even with a wicked king, God is still faithful to his people. Point B, the Lord acts through faith-filled servants. And so I want to read here verses um, 6 to you. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, he says, Come, let us cross over to the garrison of the uncircumcised Philistines. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. The Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. As they approach the camp, um, Jonathan decides to, to, to go to their outpost and uses this derisive term translated the uncircumcised, uncircumcised fellows. Basically, they're not part of the covenant people. Highlighting the fact that the Philistines are outside of the covenant of faith in Yahweh, with Yahweh. Jonathan also used the time pre-battle for preparation to reaffirm his faith with this prayerful utterance. He's praying to the Lord, really. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. He's not speaking of uh, uh, his security that he will do this, but he's confessing a confidence in Yahweh's power to bring victory against all odds, with few or with many. 
We can hardly claim that Jonathan's faith was a product of his environment, can we? A quick look back in the previous chapter should convince us that there are no grounds for enthusiasm here with Saul's faith. As Pastor Ralph Davis puts it, the circumstances did not stimulate optimism, but this, this is not optimism. This is faith. Some people are naturally optimistic. They just don't know any better. They just think that life is honky-dory. <laughs> but faith can arise even when there's no reason for optimism. Reason for faith may exist. Jonathan clearly indicates the basis of his. Faith arises in such a situation because it looks not to the circumstances, but to God. Note his words again here. Clear conviction about God for nothing can keep Yahweh from saving. That's basically what it means, no restraints. It produces a great expectation of God. Perhaps Yahweh will act for us and recognizes the God's normal manner of working by many or by few through his servants. He will work through people, but he's not limited by their number. Jonathan is not trusting his own daring scheme. He does not say, perhaps Yahweh will act for us, for we're rather clever. We're very smart. If anything, his daring is an expression of his trust in Yahweh, a trust rooted in the truth about who God is. Yet the beauty of Jonathan's faith, it is in his imagination. Come, let us go. Perhaps God will do this for us. And the beauty of his imagination is in this one key word here, perhaps. It is a Jonathan saying, God can do mighty works very with very small resources, and God may be glad to do it in this case. And how can we know, dear armor-bearer, unless we place ourselves at his disposal? How refreshing it is to hear Jonathan's who knows. Who knows what Yahweh will do? Who knows what God can do if we put ourselves in his disposal? There is no limit to how he can save. There is no need of at least 600 trembling men that were always scared and hiding in holes. And how refreshing it is to hear Jonathan's perhaps, perhaps Yahweh will act for us. Many of our day, on our own day, think otherwise. They think to say perhaps cuts the nerve of faith, that if it is faith, it must always be certain and dogmatic and absolutely positive. Faith, however, must not be confused with arrogance. And let me emphasize this because I hear so many times people just saying, oh, I declare this. I, I guarantee this. As if they are certain in how God is going to act. Jonathan saying, perhaps God can do this, but this is not a guarantee that he would do this. Jonathan's perhaps is part of his faith. He both confesses the power of God and he retains the freedom of God. Faith, this is the key, faith did not dictate, does not dictate to God as if the Lord of hosts is an errand boy. You don't tell God what to do. He's not your errand boy. Faith recognizes its degree of ignorance. I don't know, know and knows that has not read a transcript of the divine decrees for the most situations. And we don't have the exact sequence of how God is going to do things. So we can't dictate on how he's going to do it. 
Who knows what this omnipotent God may be delighted to do against this uncircumcised Philistine? That's what Jonathan is saying here. This is such a contrast with his father, who presumed on, the, on God's will and acted foolishly under pressure. That Saul was not being acting faith. He was acting presumption. I already know what God wants me to do, and I'm going to do it anyways. I'm just going to give in to pressure. I'm not going to hear what he said in his word to do. That's not faith. Presumption inadvertently trusts in self. Faith completely trusts in God. Keep, let's keep reading. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. Uh, this is really interesting because in the original text, it's, it's really he's saying, You know, man, I am with you heart and soul. I am with you like your heart is with you. I am knit to you, and I'm going to do this. You see, his faith, too, is a pledge of total support for whatever actions Jonathan might take. This degree of loyalty would be needed, especially in view of Jonathan's blueprint of action. This was a suicide plan. It was not a very bright move. Then Jonathan, verse 8 says, Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the man and reveal ourselves to them, and if he says to us, until, wait until we come to you, then we will stand our place and not go to them. But if, we say, if they say, come to us, then we'll go up. For the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be a sign to us. Jonathan's plan for fighting the Philistine defied all military logic. First, he would give up the element of surprise. We will cross over. He's going to show himself up. Second, he would avoid a skirmish with the Philistines if they abandoned their position of strategic superiority on the hilltop and exhausted themselves coming down to that position. That was the most logic thing. Let's just wait for them to come down, and we'll do it. But on the other hand, he would attack if they challenged him to scale the sheer rock wall and then take them on. The plan is so absurd that if it, didn't, if, if it did succeed, it could only be because the Lord has given them into our hands. That's how he says here in verse 10. We will know that this was because the Lord would give us into our hands. Why? Because there's no logic to all of this plan. It would only be God. All right, the cliff up with Jonathan climbed to reach the Philistine outpost may have been um, along this Wadi Swahini, um, Swahiniti, um, and it's where it narrows into a gorge. Uh, in the foreground, you can see the modern town of Mi'kmash. Uh, do I have there Mi'kmash, the modern city? Um, right there, this is a modern city. Um, like a distant view here, you can see where it is. This is the, the crag, and then this is the city over there. So we keep reading here on verse 14, uh, 11 through 14. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed, hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll tell you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given, a, given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer behind him and 
And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer put some to death after him. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within half a furrow in an acre of land. The two men proceeded in accordance to Jonathan's plan, and then they even taunted Jonathan to say, oh, look at them. They're like the little worms coming out of their holes, just trying to um, tease him. And Jonathan interpreted the Philistines' word as the divine confirmation. This is it. This is the sign. We're going to go up. Ordering his armor bearer to follow, the two began a difficult climb and his hands and feet. And I, I want to make a comment here because he says, you know, I will go up first. Normally, you have the armor bearer to go first, but this is the proof of a true leader. You know, I'll take the heat. You come after me. I, I'll lead you follow. God before me and I will follow you. Rather, he put himself in line. His armor bearer followed. Perhaps the task was the task was made even more challenging by stones and arrows rained down on them by the Philistines. Against all odds, Jonathan and his companion arrived safely at the top with enough strength and stamina to challenge and exterminate, exterminate a squad of armed Philistines. I mean, just one sword. I don't know if he had Saul's sword, probably, but they clearly got the swords from the Philistines because they had no weapons. Uh, when verse 15 says that they, they go and the, the battle spreads. Well, news of Jonathan's stunning victory over the hostile forces is spread quickly to the main uh, Philistine camp, situated little more than half a mile away. The massacre of 20 well-armed comrades by two Israelites surely would have been taken by the Philistines as a omen that their gods were not with them in their present campaign. So this conclusion was reinforced by the perfectly timed tremor that served as an evidence of the Lord. So we keep reading verse 15 here, as the Lord acts on behalf of his people, that there was a trembling in the camp, in the field among all the people, and even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earthquake saw it became a great trembling. And, you know, other translations say a great trembling of God. This earthquake that happened, it was a supernatural thing. And I, I don't know about, you know, if you had any experience with earthquakes, any Californians here, but it is quite a distressful situation. Let me tell you this much. I remember, I remember having some. My first one was like, oh, this is kind of cool. It's just a little shaking. But uh, at some point in the middle of the night, I remember being just jolted out of my bed. And boy, I was just so... And you have to run out. You can't be under things. So we would go to the backyard where it's kind of open. And I look at the pool at the family that I live with, and it was like the swishing of the water. And it's panic-inducing. So you hear the, the, the cry out of battle and people dying there. They get in despair. The Lord is acting. It was a panic sent from God. That's what the text is saying here. The Hebrew word translated for trembling also uh, panic happens two times in this verse. It says that the Israelites are in that. It's kind of interesting because in the chapter 13, it says that the Israelites were in quaking fear. Now we have the Philistines in quaking fear because the Lord intervened. 
verses, um, we're getting close here to the end. Saul, then, kind of interesting, 16. Now Saul's watchmen in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went here and there. And Saul said to his people who were with him, Number now, see who has gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. He's just clueless. What is going on? The Lord is making this huge deliverance. They're hearing the noises. They don't even know where his son is. Then Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. Uh Uh-oh, you have heard this before, didn't you? For the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. While Saul talked to the priest, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Now, some people believe that um, he's not really talking. Maybe this is a textual error, that this is not really the ark. The ark is kind of far from where they are. It is in Kiriath-Jerim, which is about um, at least seven miles from where they are. It's not something that you can just like, hey, bring it here, seven miles. And they're walking their feet. Um, to bring it. So it's more likely because the Septuagint translated it and Josephus even makes a reference to this is the ephod. Remember that we read in verse um, 3 that um, Ahijah was wearing an ephod. The, that priest was wearing an ephod. What is the ephod? It's basically this breastplate that they have, the priest would wear to, to consult God. So that would make more sense. And they would consult God before battles. Now, this is, this is, he's doing something okay here, but not completely. You know, the Lord already had shown that he is giving his okay for the battle. He blessed Jonathan. And his interruption, I mean, he started already consulting the Lord, and this is never mentioned in scripture, of a priest being interrupted from seeking the Lord. Saul just interrupts it. Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and other people who were with him railed, rallied and came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. What a confusion that happened there. Because now that Jonathan had attacked, um, they started to disperse all the, the, the Philistine forces in the camp. Because they were so confused, they started fighting each other. And then, verse 21 says, Now the Hebrews, who were with the Philistines previously, the ones that turned against their own people, right, the, the, the betrayers that were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. Now, why, how is these people fighting now? They don't have any weapons. They got the weapons from the Philistines. And then closing here in verse 23, And so the Lord delivered Israel that day. And the battle is spread beyond Bad Haven. So I want to just make a few comments here. I know that we're excited with this Jonathan situation, you know, and he really spread them out. I mean, you see, look at the, um, at the 
red one, the sauce force, and how they kind of push them back out um, and they disperse from where they came. Um, Jonathan's comments in verse 6 is clear, a clear reminder that any victory is God's victory, not our own. All right? He could have said, and so Jonathan delivered Israel that day. But what does it say in verse 23? So the Lord delivered Israel that day. He said, the Lord is not restrained to save by few or by little, but by many. God's victory, not our own. Many people give lip service to God for divine blessings while quietly congratulating themselves for their personal achievements and their bright future. That was not the case with Jonathan. The greatest victories are won by those who recognize that only God can defeat their greatest enemies. Jonathan is unquestionably worthy of praise for his valiant kamikaze attack upon the Philistines, but the narrator goes to great pains to emphasize that Jonathan's fighting is blessed by God, and that subsequent panic resulted from a great trembling of God. The earthquake, that wasn't a Jonathan thing. You see, some would read this narrative and think and have moralistic applications. Be like Jonathan. Don't be like Saul. That's where we're going with this, right? And yet, as we saw through the whole narrative, God is the one acting. He's not restrained by his people's helplessness, by their faithlessness, by their king's presumption and inadequacy. He's not restrained even by probabilities. He can save his people even with a couple of faithful brave men. But the focus isn't in the numbers. The focus is on him and he gets the glory. The main lesson for us is it is not to be seeking a presumption's name it and claim it by faith, but to declare our dependence in the God who is with us in our helplessness, who is mighty to save. Let's close with 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 8 and 10. I think um, Paul really encourages us here. Is this the God that only worked in the past with the Old Testament saints to do mighty things by faith? Paul's disagree with that. When we're helpless, he says here, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within us, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Helplessness leads us to hope in God who delivered us from great peril of death, who will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. Hebrews 12, 13, we don't put our confidence on our faith. We fix our eyes on who? On the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that your hands are not restrained. You are not restrained to work in our lives. We're so thankful, Lord, for the encouragement from Scripture. 
that we know that we're weak, we're, our faith is failing, and yet you are a great God that can be trusted. Oh, Lord, help us with our unbelief, even today, in Jesus' name.